All right, folks, welcome back to another edition of the Not Funny Guys Presents Why, exploring the philosophy, rhetoric, and cultural impact of the MCU. I am your host, Dr. John. I'm joined here, returning one of my best friends, Eric, who knows some but not a lot about philosophy. <laughs> just some, just some. All right, rhetoric? Uh, not much. How about comic book culture? I mean, movies. Exactly. You got the movies. You there always you got go. the movies. Same for most people. Which is why he's here to talk to me. This pod, of course, is an extension of our main podcast, The Not Funny Guys Presents Off the Reels, where we explore the films. And here we'll go a little bit deeper into some of the ideas and things that stick out with a little bit of debate and discussion. We start by asking why. This is episode 13, Avengers Infinity War. And so to start us off with our comic book origins, we're going to hit mainly Thanos and his little cavalcade that we call the children of thanos but in the movie we called them well we called them um that in the movie and the comic books they're called the black order so let's start with thanos who is of course uh, of all the characters here probably the one who's been around the longest in fact he really has except for maybe Etri, who i'll mention at the end but here's he's our big baddie of the infinity saga in the mcu he was created by jim starlin uh, along with mike freitich um, he first appeared in the Invincible Iron Man number 55 in 1973. He is and technically classified as an eternal deviant warlord from the moon Titan. And when we say Titan in this case, Ooh. we do mean Titan as in Saturn's moon in our solar system. Oh, not really? a planet far away, yes. He is, in fact, referred to a nickname of his is called the Mad Titan. Um, and so he, strangely enough, it's weird to think that, you know, it would be interesting to see what happens with maybe in the movie universe, if there's any kind of callbacks to him, since we've now introduced the Eternals, mm -hmm. for which he has an integral part in that in the comic books. Uh, Starlin actually claims to have come up with Thanos originally when he was in, in his college psychology classes. He named him for the Freudian concept of human death drive known as Thanatos. Uh, a name uh, for what, what the human drive towards it's basically a human drive towards repetition, aggression, self-destruction. Huh. It's often used huh. to categorize a, a, a particular strain in the human condition where we tend to undermine ourselves. Um, the uh, the idea that um, we're sabotaging ourselves, right? Yes, yeah, so a lot of sabotage, things that we do, like self sabotage. Again, yeah. Well, so, but like in particular on a human wide concept here, think about repetition of things. Wars, aggression, self-destruction, oh, okay. those kind of things. Not it, the uh, it, not the sort of like I always like every time it's going well with a you know a partner, I, I self-sabotage. Yeah. Okay. No, okay. not quite that. We're talking a little, a little bit, bit broader, a bit grander, <laughs> a little bit grander here. Uh Starlin does apparently has admitted that he was inspired by Jack Kirby's Dark Side. Mm. Um, and of course, Thanos is the brother of the eternal Eros, who we saw played by Harry Styles in the end credits of the Eternal. Sorry, folks, spoiler. We'll get there. Um, and he's obsessed with courting the goddess of death, which we didn't get to see. But we did have a hint of that in the MCU when they mentioned that at the end. I think it was at the end of the Avengers at some point or one point where we first saw him turn and give a little half grin thing. They, yeah. they played on that. Now, his main little cavalcade of sidekicks, if you want to call them, Ebony Maul, Proxima Midnight, uh, Corvus Glaive, and Cull Obsidian. Interestingly enough, they were all members of Blackwater. They actually are not as old as Thanos. They tend to actually be rather new creations, as you'll see here in a second. Ebony Maul was created by Jonathan Hickman, who is an all-time favorite of mine in comic book writing, and Jerome Apina, 
He first appeared in a cameo at the end of New Avengers number eight and a first full appearance in Infinity number one in what year, Garrick? What do you think? What's the year he appeared? For Infinity number one? Infinity number one. What, what year do you think we're dealing with? New Avengers number eight, Infinity number one. Give me a year you guess. Want to guess here? 93. 2013. Golly. Talking five <laughs> years before the movie. Wow. He Wait, is a member. Yeah. They know, like the, um, the guy who was. Um, yeah, this is Ebony Maul, the guy who with the who messes who's around doing all the, the telekinesis, well, kids that's Doctor Strange. Yeah, basically yeah, he, he's the one who goes up against uh, Iron Man in the at the beginning. Yeah, you know, exactly. Kind of directly, yeah, okay. not that old of a character. He, of course, they he is listed as a member of the Black Order, which you know, is a organization that we come to know as the children of Thanos in the movies. It's interesting because I don't feel like I feel like all of a sudden they just had these characters there, like those you know the Moss person, all these people. Mm-hmm. where from a viewer perspective, certainly as someone who pretty much only knows the movies, I was like, who are all these people and why am I supposed to like, I feel like there was a little bit of fan service, which is fine. I mean, you yeah. earned it after 10 movies, but like at the same time, I had no idea who these people were. I think it worked for, um, who was the guy who fought Iron Man? Ebony Maul. Ebony Maul. Ebony Maul. I want to say Moss for something. You, uh, you Ebony see Maul. Them as, they're like, they're like his chief henchmen in a sense. But I, like, I feel like he has the best sort of, introduction in terms of a, a villain henchman Perhaps. because at least even though they're never like here's a backstory like i'm not saying i need to go through a whole movie of backstory for each of mm-hmm. these characters but i feel like at least he was kind of like defined himself right yeah, in, and in terms of portrayal and, and kind of true the, the, herald, the, if you will. the gentleman portraying him i think did an excellent job of kind of mm-hmm. animating the character and of course he was uh, he was being um his his uh you know shall we say partner in crime was Cull obsidian who in the comic books is called black dwarf he was also created by john hickman and jerome opina first appeared in new avengers number eight and that was the rock like yeah and first first appeared in infinity number one in 2013 and of course he uses that powerful axe like weapon as kind of his thing now the other little group or team a miniature partnership thing that one that went after vision and scarlet witch are proxima midnight and corvus glaive also members of the black order all of them created by jonathan hickman um with the exception of corvus glaive also having jim chang as co-creator um all members of the black order proxima midnight also appeared in avengers number eight new avengers number eight uh corvus glaive first appeared in infinity a free comic book day preview also in 2013 Corvus Glaive is known for his superhuman strength and his um his primary use of the weapon a glaive, which is that axe spear like axe, medieval weapon. There, folks, worked okay. And of course, approximately yeah. When was the Infinity War saga in the comic books? Uh, there is an older version of it that took place yeah. I think in the nineteen eighties. Okay. Um, but these were not members of that event. Okay. And then they redid it in 2013. They kind of brought it back, is okay. what they did. And then when they brought it back, they introduced these newer characters. And of course, Proxima Midnight has a lot of hand to hand cult. Uh, she's near invulnerable, and her primary weapon is a spear. Of course, that makes sense when you consider the fact that it took Scarlet Witch throwing her up into a roving, like, <laughs> blade saw wheel that killed her. So, yeah. Which is one of the best, like, exits of any oh Marvel i know villain. yeah no, very much <laughs> like so. i feel like it was nice to see an end game not to to derail from the why too much but it was nice to see an end game them just like kill oh, <laughs> yeah. just not not be worried about like oh we got to be disneyfied or anything like that because i think no, they were no. disney by then but they were totally like yes. yep let's just this is a horrific battle end for this woman yes and so then of course the last character i'm going to bring our attention to is Etri. is actually a real mythological dwarf from norse mythology 
Uh, in the comic books, he was the dwarf, uh, and he was also a dwarf. He lived on, uh, I'm going to butcher this name, Sarfelheim, yeah. uh, and he was the king there of I the dwarves. <laughs> he did forge Milnir for Thor. Mm. Uh, he has also then later been sort of developed as a character who became associated with the New Mutants with the, the X-Men connection. In Marvel Comics, he was originally created by Alan Zenet, Zenetez and Bob Hall and appeared in Thor Annual Number 11 in 1983. He later was adapted by Chris Claremont and Arthur Adams and appeared in the New Mutant Special Edition later in the 1980s. And so he's been around since then. Now, of course, in the MCU, like I noted earlier, the Black Order was specifically adapted into the Children of Thanos, and Eitri was made the king of Niflheim, or whatever it was, the, the Great Dwarf Forge. So, And if you want to know more about Eitri and the mythological, he actually has an interesting uh, mythological story about creating special things for the gods while Loki tries to interfere with him and his brothers creating them. It's a yeah. whole little myth inside of Norse mythology. So for our topic discussion here, I'm working off a 2018 article written by Mary Ingram about where she described Thanos as, quote, a sociopath with a heart, end quote. The article actually attempts to imagine a session and slash intervention with Thanos on the part of this therapist. Quote, by the time this client, and she's now referring to Thanos, told me about his past, I had already diagnosed him with both narcissistic personality disorder and antisocial personality disorder. The first is, is characterized by a grandiosity, a preoccupations with the limitless power, beliefs in his own special purpose that no one else understands, entitlement, exploitation of others, lack of empathy and arrogance. Megalomaniac fits well here. The second is characterized by repeated law-breaking, aggressiveness, and lack of remorse. So this is why she has combined the two. So the additional, her initial diagnosis is that he also might have some form of schizophrenia sure. because he appears to be quite delusional. <laughs> <laughs> so the interview intervention begins for her when she begins to talk about him killing his daughter, Gamora, folks. So I wonder if your internal unrest stems from the from stems first from the confusion and unfamiliarity of truly loving someone, and second, from how that love and its loss at your own hands, no less, deters you from the triumph of realizing your dream. So this is part of her diagnosis here, is the notation here that he appears to be a little unhinged and confused primarily because he, you know, Oh no, I love somebody because of course, what did Gamora do, but laugh in his face when that was brought to his attention by the red skull. And of course he did. And of course his reply is love with a voice dripping with indignation. You're saying that what's bothering me, what tears my soul and keeps me from sleeping. Love always has been irrelevant. He paused though it was apparently useful for gaining the soul stone. His huge shoulders sagged. My heart broke when I lost her, my little one, my fighter. But in that moment, I thought it would be worth it. A worthy exchange. One she would have willingly died for if she truly understand me. If she could truly see the paradise I saw and the paradise I was recreating. And this is where she notes, and if we haven't noticed this already, his narcissism was kicking it up hard here. <laughs> I was about to say, 100% narcissism right yes, here. <laughs> I mean, kicking in here. 
Uh, and of course, I decided to go Her with it. Her death was all about me. <laughs> exactly. I decided to go with it and as much love as was there, but also warp in his self -admir ad admiration. Long ago, you have been long ago, you had seen in the struggling little girl of a dying planet, a fighter, the determination of defiance on her face of uh, in the face of an enemy. You had seen yourself in her and you raised her to be your little one, even a little you. She became part of you. His eyes widened with the statement, some truth clicking into place for him. You thought after killing her, after destroying a living, bringing peaceful peace, beautiful peace of yourself, that it was worth it. Was it worth it? I like that she pulls in that statement there because what does what does um young little in the soul stone version of um Gamora ask him? Was mm -hmm. it worth it? Right. So here is her outcome. I still okay. don't know if Thanos felt was love, which requires something fundamentally antithetical to his uh antisocial personality disorder, empathy. Did he mourn out of guilt? For ending the life of a person he loved and cared for or a person whose happiness and well-being he valued or did he feel regret because he projected onto her an image of himself and his narcissistic pride could not fathom why he might intentionally harm anything that was his is empathy the ability and deeply understand which is the ability to deeply understand the feel and others emotions really any different from seeing ourselves in another person. So looking at what we looked at, what do we think here about this idea about what is kind of psychologically twisted and wrong about Thanos as confusing and perplexing complex character? How does it feel to try and imagine diagnosing him? Does, do we feel like she has a point? Does it hold up? That's what I want to have us discuss. I mean, her diagnosis is that he's extremely narcissist. Well, she's diagnosing him as both having what appears to be some kind of like perhaps a little bit of schizophrenia, but obviously a strong, strong clinging and, you know, shall we say, immersion into narcissistic personality and antisocial personality disorder. Because she says the narcissism is what comes out in his obsessions about wanting these things, believing the grandiosity of his purpose, the idea when he says things like I am inevitable mm -hmm. and the antisocial personality disorder are the elements where he is, you know, aggressive and lack of remorse. So in a lot of ways, those two things kind of, if seen together could be conceptually perceived as being a little schizophrenic where one is sort of obsessed with oneself, but willing to then lash out at the world around them when that, sense of the uh the um shall we say the internal image of the self is interrupted hmm. and i think there is something to say about the fact that that does get interrupted in some degree in what happens to gamora you know if you look at the way he went you know because i think that scene is kind of pivotal when you have to make a set exchange of something you love and gamora laughs at him on boromir basically clearly knowing he is a narcissistic personality disorder and in her mind, because she understands that this really mean is a real laugh in your face because you are not capable of hurting, of loving anybody else. But yet in some ways he can because he has projected onto her an extension of himself. And through his antisocial personality, he is willing to act aggressively to destroy something like that. 
destroy something beautiful to quote Ooh. the words of Tyler Durden. Wow, there's a lot of there's a lot of layers there. So there I, is. <laughs> let me um uh, let me digest and say what I can about it. Okay. I guess. Um, oh, don't worry. We don't we don't have to believe me. We're not we're not paid psychologists. <laughs> I'm, not sol- I'm not solving no, not, Thanos here. No, we're not. We're not something. <laughs> we're just gonna we're just gonna armchair. We're gonna armchair psychology this a little bit and see what so, we come up with. I totally agree with the narcissism, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I think that's kind of an obvious one for even Donald Trump to see. <laughs> oh, no, let me, let me really like they're describing it. Look at this: it grandiosity, yeah. preoccupations of limitless power, beliefs in his own special purpose that mm-hmm. no one else understands, entitlement, exploitation of others, lack of empathy, and arrogance. That is like describing but, politicians and particularly Thanos to a T. <laughs> but it, well, so Thanos makes me think very much of your your standard tyrant dictator in a way. Yes. Because I also get the feeling that, uh, so obviously he set out for his one mission, and I think that there is a certain amount of recognition that he wants for solving kind of the the universal problem as he sees it. He sees himself as the only one who can solve it, too. He thinks so, right? Yes, of course, exactly. Right? So that's, and, and I alone can solve your problems, like exactly. sort of idea, right? So. So here he comes and does all this. And I think that, yes, there is a certain amount of narcissism. I disagree with the antisocial part. Okay. I actually kind of get the feeling, even though it feels weird to disagree with this because he's trying to get rid of half the universal population, mm-hmm. right? He's literally trying to get rid of a certain amount of society and and, and obviously does not find himself at in good company with a society. But he constantly is making his case which leads me to feel like he is trying to convince people to come with him i feel like he is lonely right and that he is very much wanting of company and wanting of someone of his of his own intellectual sort of challenge right he wants an equal almost well let's throw that in the mix let's throw that in the mix real quick think about what he has in gamora versus what he has in his children of thanos so in gamora he has a child in gamora he has an adopted child and i think that that comes more into focus when it's time to kill her well it Um, means that she in a sense he's chosen her so he has imprinted on her but he also in a sense way chose her yes based on what we saw in the flashback but also think about what she does she challenges him. She pushes against him. She does not forgive him. And yet he does not stop wanting, in a sense, her approval or her understanding of why he does things. But then look at the contrast with, say, Ebony Maul. What mm-hmm. does Ebony Maul do? Whatever that Thanos wants him to do. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, Jump. He's, How high? He's a, yeah, he's the perfect yes man. They all are. You know? I mean, that's any henchman, right? Well, yeah. And I mean, but even that's so, it's true. more like. You know, and I feel like if you thought about Thanos, like imagine Thanos, like henchmen are the chorus of of villains. <laughs> well, it's like imagine, you know, yeah, I know, but it's like imagine if he got himself, and that's a good reference there, especially if you think about Venture Brothers. You ever watch Venture Brothers? <laughs> I've Folks, seen you haven't watched Venture, you know, watch Venture Brothers because they developed two great twenty one and twenty two, or the twenty. I don't remember the names. Twenty one is one of them, but they developed two henchmen who literally end up serving as kind of like the chorus for a long time, and uh-huh. it happens to be voiced by the two creators of the show. Oh, very ooh. good, very good. Worth your time looking. At, yeah, work very worth your time. But getting back to this idea of the of the henchman, as I think when when Thanos looked at Ebony Maul, there's probably a part of him that thought, "Oh, this guy's powerful, and I can make him more powerful, and he'll be like my loyal lieutenant." And all he got was a sycophant who like religiously worships him. And I think in some ways Thanos is completely okay with that. But at the same time, Thanos is probably like, 
uh, okay, just another one. Stick him in the club. You know, I think that's what he wants, but I think there's also a part of him that longs to have somebody who he can respect and who pushes back against him. And I think Gamora is about as close as he gets, you know, yeah, especially when he leaves him. Yeah. When she left him and back in and guardians and basically split ways with him. I mean, he doesn't turn on her. He never, in fact, starts, stops loving her in a way and wants her to come back because he feels like it's almost as if for him, it's the challenge of saying, this is the part of myself that doubts my own mission. And if I can convince her of the mission, then I am like, like you were saying, reinforcing his own sense Mm -hmm. of self-purpose. Well, let's dive a little deeper here too. The first time he essentially meets Gamora, right? Mm -hmm. He then offers her a knife. He has a moment with her, but not only does he have something with her, she trusts him mm-hmm. right it's it's worth ke- keeping that in mind that as all of the horrible is going on she chooses and i think they do a pretty good job the russo brothers right i, I think mm-hmm. director of this yeah yeah make a good do a good job of showing young gamora recognize that she is putting her attention her literal focus away from the bad and she is it is almost like the start of of uh, Stockholm syndrome, right at that little moment, bit, where yeah. where she that. kind of starts sympathizing with this. She's gotten a gift from this guy, and she's going to walk away with this guy. Like, well, and he's he's and, telling her things, you know. He's yeah. like he's he's playing the adult who's like offering who's, to guide her, giving her attention. What children her. want? Yeah. Well, yeah, what yeah, children want? Exactly. He, and he I is think stepping into a fatherly role. And to that so. end, because she has that level of acceptance at that moment, I think that is something that Thanos is constantly chasing with her from there on out. Mm-hmm. Right. He wants that sort of feeling of approval that he had for that one moment. And ultimately, as Gamora gets older and older, I imagine she comes to understand the situation she's in more and more being as intelligent as she is. Mm-hmm. And as good of a fighter as she is, I think she and I think they even reference this in at least the Guardians, if not the um the endgame or sorry, the um the Infinity War where her and Nebula they're fighting. I think Gamora is smart enough to realize that she had to win in order to politically put herself in the right positions. The survival for her. I mean, yeah. she understood. I mean, he is. She played the game. Yeah, differently. He, than he puts Nebula. he puts them in a the game. This is going back. to Nebula the actually wanted his love. Nebula yes. actually no, she wanted did. to be his child. Yeah, and I think it's a, it's a fun, interesting dynamic, and I think we'll probably definitely have an opportunity. I think when we get into Endgame, to maybe talk a little bit more about that. But there is between the two of them, there is a there's a sort of a contrasting element because when you think about their relationship being raised as the daughters of Thanos, you can tell in a way that he definitely has a favoritism, and he pits them against each other the way a like a terrible parent would do. Because he's not a good parent. He literally can be a good no. parent only so far as he has a it has value to him. To, to be so clear, he, at no point am I defending no, Thanos I know. as a parent. No, no, no. I don't think <laughs> Thanos is not a defensible parent. He's definitely no. not a defensible parent. I just think that what we have with him and Gamora in that first meeting where he does that is that she is taken in by him because she recognizes, you know, there is a little Stockholm thing going on there. But she also recognizes that he's offering to kind of be the he's playing good cop to her, everybody else with her yeah if you think about it that way everything she's experiencing with his soldiers that's bad yeah. he's like oh hey i'll help you find your mother he's right. like a he's like the creepy guy with a white van okay <laughs> look i got candy it's a knife 
Okay. But it does look like a piece of candy, by the way. That knife, that little thing, and a little red thing. When you take it first lady, it's like, oh, is it an elaborate candy box? No, it's a knife. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. And then what does he do? He, oh, and look, he's teaching her something, you know, and it's like, oh, don't look at don't look at that. Focus, focus. You know, it's it's very flowers. creepy. Look at the ducks. And, yeah, and it's obviously that, you know, he uh, he attempts to groom both Nebula and her to be these supreme fighters because ultimately going back to his narcissism it's an extension of himself you know i yes. think in his mind in his mind is his mind it was him then there's the extension of himself in Gamora and Nebula and then there's the extension of himself in say Ebony Maw and them they are much on the lesser end of things if we're thinking so, about higher and i don't even know if he actually cares if they live or die and they yes, seem to be fully obsessed they fully they are fully obsessed with like if they fail they die like they are living that what kind of lifestyle so this is to me this is where you have i'm watching i'm trying to get through the last three episodes i'm finally on episode 10 coming up of succession where you have okay. essentially so i think uh, of thanos as a corporate head right so oh, yeah. on one end he one. has his family who is fighting for his attention in a way that is 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 primal and in a way that when gamora thinks she's killed him she breaks down in tears in a way that nebula can't bring herself to hurt him you know to the level that i think she could despite the nebula fact that almost, she has the hatred you know? nebula kind of self-sabotaged i think her attempts yeah, to kill totally. him ultimately but, are undermined by her doubt yeah but to that end he's running a business <laughs> if you will almost of, of genocide of genocide exactly and ebony ma and and the others at that point are really more of the the c the cios the whatever else kind of oh yeah like the vice presidents they're right they're all yeah they're gonna if you let them i mean if this played out as even a a 50 minute tv show on you know special on disney plus there would just be so much like political infighting like a succession show of them trying to get thanos's attention and love right Mm -hmm. and it's not the same sort of love that you would get from you know, your own family or you would give to your own family. It's the sort of promotion, right? It's the sort of like, you'll be the next CEO. It's, if you it's keep like this the up. achievement is their only, de- their understanding of love is only defined by the achievement they can create. Right. It's not but, unconditional. It is conditional. It is fully conditional and not unconditional. The better love. they do, the higher yeah. the rank they achieve in Thanos's army. Exactly. And I think Gamora is one of the ones who realized that. And that's one of the reasons why she also left. And she didn't want to keep doing that because in a yeah. lot of ways, I think she 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 was not she's not a narcissistic or anything of that. She is just someone who has spent her life in like a survival complex, basically trying to just stay alive. And to that end, I mean, she escapes essentially right in the first mm-hmm. uh, the first Guardians. Guardians. First Guardians yeah. And that's really an opportunistic moment of hers. Oh, yeah. She, she exploits the fact that she's, she's been loaned always out to Ronan. To, and she's yeah, finally she's, realized the moment. Yeah. Yeah. She was loaned out to Roman and Ronan. And then she sees this moment where she can look like she's serving a purpose for her father that lets Ronan realize he can let her out of his sight. And what's the first thing she does with it? She's like, I'm out. So, <laughs> you, know, you know, like I'm out of here. Right. I'm getting this thing because my plan is to sell it. And then when she realizes, and I think the fun thing about Guardians is the moment she realized it was an Infinity Stone, you could just see how she shifts hard. Like she knows mm-hmm. what this is, right? She knows what Thanos wants, why he wants it. All of a sudden, that's when she has a moment of horror, like horror and terror. Like he's found one. We've got. We can't just sell this. We've got to give this to somebody who can keep it away from someone who's strong enough. Well, to that end, I imagine Gamora has been his most trusted confidant up until oh no, yes, her escape, you know exactly. So and of course it, she trusted it, she all trusted of his Nebula. evil plans have been discussed with Gamora in all likelihood at some point, and Nebula to a degree and, too, because remember Nebula notes that he 
tried to it. perfect her. Yeah. She'll talk about this in Endgame. We'll get we'll see this again. But in Endgame, she makes a specific reference because that's how they locate where he was. Mm-hmm. Was that she talks about it because he says when he would try to perfect me, he would talk to me. So whereas Gamora is a competent in the sense that he seems to be willing to discuss things with her because he sort of has a trust for her as an extension. They talk so, over dinner. <laughs> yes, and what you know. it does to Nebula is I'm talking to you because I need to hear the sound of my own voice. His talk with Nebula is like the villain monologuing to the you know James Bond as he's trying to kill him with the yes. laser. <laughs> yes, it's, I'm monologuing because I want you to know how great I am. Yeah, exactly. You know, I, don't I want, want you I don't... to be as great as me, Nebula. Exactly. I want you to be as great as me. I'm going to tell you things just because you know I need to. I want you to imagine how glorious I am in the sound of my own voice. <laughs> Yep. I mean that's what it like it yep. strikes me as as with that. So and and I think Nebula's the audience, whereas Gamora's the comp, you know, his his trusted right hand mm-hmm. in that way. That Gamora is the tr- is his child, right? Well, is and Gormley, his, well, essentially the truer expression eyes. of who he's had some part of him he sees as himself. Yeah, yeah. You know, Definitely. if if um if we think about she it, would I, she would have seen the throne. You know, yeah. If, so, like, if, if it was like, Thanos, yeah, if it was Thanos, and if it's if it's Gamora and it's Nebula, Gamora is very much like he sees it as his right arm, and the, and Nebula is like his favorite gun. He can it, live without the favorite gun. He can't live without his arm. Basically. It's kind of like it's kind of like Odin with Thor and Loki. Only oh, like ooh. Nebula is Loki, and Odin obviously is is that. But like instead of like this kind of love and trusting, good faith sort of family where well, one of them remember that pissed, Odin wasn't exactly a great. There's dad the exact either, so. opposite where there's two like people who are in bad faith, and yes. there's one Gamora in good faith. Like Gamora is kind of the reverse Loki of this horrible family True. of the negative Odin and the negative you know Thor. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, I think there's something worth it. I mean, even though what Samoa had mentioned that I mean, Odin, that's, Odin that's was not really exactly it, Odin is not a, was not a great dad, but at least there was a no. sense that he he did seem to have some sense. But of it wasn't for love. lack of effort. Yeah, yeah. He he was just bad at it. Right. Is what his problem? He was just bad at it. He was just <laughs> yeah. really bad. He at did. It. He didn't go around torturing Loki. He no, just no. Didn't necessarily love Loki as much as Thor. And in a sense, was <laughs> I think it's interesting to think about Loki because, like Nebula and Gamora, he was taken from. Odin, Odin took him yeah. from the enemies, which is why I know? say Gamora is the yeah. reverse Loki. Is yeah. well, that's a well, good both question. Her is and Nebula, Nebula. No, both is they both Nebula are. taken too. They kind of both are in a sense. Where's Nebula they, taken from? Because I know, I don't think I don't I know where she. That. I don't think they ever divulge in the um. They don't. But she's not his direct. No, child, like no. One. She okay. she is someone. She is obviously someone just like Gamora who he picked up. It's like a spoil of war, which is kind of a little. You bit think what, she's oh, younger? The younger sister? She might be. I think she's supposed to be the younger she one. Picked up second, so to speak. Yeah, second, second. Yeah, second. So you know, never is good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, I think that that was really good. No, that's a, so I think I think let's think about our final thoughts here. I think it's you know worth repeating the idea that so we're on agreement that we think that Thanos is definitely demonstrating the the narcissistic personality disorder. I think capital can, N. Oh yeah, yeah I think yeah. I think, we can, <laughs> I think we can accept that. We I think we think that at some point, particularly his relationship with Gamora, I think we start to lose some of the antisocial personality disorder. Um, the lack of remorse starts to have a chip in the armor because yeah. whether or not he can really feel empathy, which would his narcissistic personality would say no. If we imagine that he views Gamora within the confines of being a true extension of himself. He may have some unrepressed inability, and I think that the um, the the article by 
Mary Ingram about him sort of tries to chip into some of that, you know, mm. the fact that she is part of him and he sort of seems to like, you know, I don't really know if he had, if he did love her because he doesn't, he's probably not capable of, but there was obviously a sense of like, maybe he gaslit himself into caring more about her than he realized because he obviously has some part of him that seems to be way too willing to forgive her. And that's also something that drives a wedge with Nebula that she hated because obviously Gamora was the one who he appeared to love more because why she won. I mean, yeah. she happened to be better at surviving, you know, well, there's also the fact that at some point, you know, he's trying to, he's doing this for someone, right. He's doing this for recognition for someone. So there has to be. Yeah. I think, I think maybe in some ways, I think Gamora is like proof. There's no death. <laughs> Gamora is proof of his, of his true specialness yeah, but at the same time, because he sees her as, you know, a true heir, I think in many ways it is what allows him to include her inside of that that limitless power, that belief and special purpose that allows her to put her in a sense of more inclusive than, say, anyone else. Mm -hmm. She has that special ability, almost as if she was his natural daughter. I mean, he almost seems to treat her oh, yeah. Like, yeah, oh, yeah. in that way. So um any any final thoughts what do we think here so we're we're, we're no, kind of in agreement about the narcissistic personality disorder and that there's obviously something if he was in real therapy i think he'd really have to like maybe explore why do you feel bad about killing gamora well he's very <laughs> much a narcissist narcissistic mm -hmm. sociopath right yeah me, where where he he's the gamora but, thing is interesting and mm -hmm. i you know, I, I I think that it's, it's something I don't know if we'll get with a, a Thanos storyline at any point in terms of MCU, but maybe I the think, what if, maybe the what if Gamora story we're going to get, maybe, maybe we'll get something. We we she literally need... took his place. She's literally mm. taken his place in well, that what if. So I'd be fascinated. So, well, what I'm saying is we don't really have a lot of backstory for him, mm -hmm. right? And so as one, it's one thing to say we can diagnose him, which I think we both kind of agree. Or armchair, yeah, right, yeah. But I'd be really curious to see what turned him into that, right? Because I I tend to lean more towards nurture than nature. So I don't think that this is just naturally him, right? I think that there is, in the same way that Gamora and Nebula are who they are because of the way Thanos treated them, I imagine that Thanos came to his beliefs somehow. It would be interesting to understand what shaped his need and his belief. I mean, he kind of monologues it a little bit, but like... Yeah, when they're on Titan, he does a little bit. But I, I think that there's constantly this kind of he doesn't show the larger group around him that I think ostracized him or did something right, because I think that there's a certain amount of revenge in, in his eyes, too. Oh, I'll tell you, so I don't know. I'll, I'll throw you I'll throw you a curveball that we might get some answers to if we, if we follow through with it. But remember, there is the revelation that he very likely is an eternal. So who do the Eternals work for? But the Celestials. And they're not exactly, when you look closely at them, they're not exactly like great parent figures. No. Um, no. <laughs> so, you know, if you want to talk about who he got his model from, he imagines like in a lot of ways, he's treating Gamora and Nebula and them almost like the way the Celestials treated him. So maybe right. if we see further into the Celestials, you know, especially since we did introduce Eros yeah. as his quote unquote brother, maybe we will get some sort of like, discussion of that and perhaps we might get it in that what if as well where we we did there's still an opportunity to explore that but i would mention this if we consider thanos to be a 
sociopath, sociopathic narcissist. I'm, I'm a little worried what that says for us because of our strange sort of like fascination with that. Yeah. I mean, as a culture, I think, I think Thanos <laughs> is probably the best villain in the MCU up until this point. And, and Killmonger comes into a close oh, tie, yeah. if not second, you know, second, if not tie. Um, just because I think both of them have these backstories and these moments where you realize that there is struggle for them to be who they are. Um, struggle I think, we, I think as, a, as a society, we we appreciate the we're able, we are able to empathize, even if Thanos sure. is not. Right. We are able to empathize with him to some degree on in a dark way. In a Killmonger, we can empathize as well. And I think for us, what makes these things so appealing is that though they may not be capable of empathizing with us, we are capable of empathizing with them. And because of their complexity, we can really appreciate that as an audience. And it does draw us in. It does fascinate us. And it makes us want to understand it more. It piques our curiosity. What adds to their sort of scariness as villains is the fact that they are representations of real life people, basically. Mm-hmm. Maybe not any one person, but very, very much the, the standard human nature that we can all fall prey to. Yes, that is that's very true. The fact that there is a human nature, a human element that we can see and empathize with, I think is right. what draws us. And they're not cookie cutter cutouts. It's what villains. makes us want that backstory. It's what makes us yes. want Thanos to cry over Gamora, right? Yes. It, that it, it, he's it not just artless. He is, you know, he yes. is struggling. It adds a layer. Great. Yeah. So well, everybody, that's that's our thoughts. So we want to hear from you. Tell us your thoughts. Tell us. So you can talk, read, write to us at notfunnyguys.offthereels at gmail.com. Hit us up on Instagram at not underscore under funny underscore guys underscore presents at Twitter for now i guess not funny guys i'm never gonna say x no (laughs) at not funny guys pod also blue sky at the not funny guys until next week folks keep it strange keep asking questions